0: It's an honor to be joined today by Dr. Paul Bloom. Paul is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and an emeritus professor of psychology at Yale University. Paul studies how children and adults make sense of the world with special focus on pleasure and morality, religion, fiction, art, and language. He has won numerous awards for his research and teaching and is the author of seven books, most recently, Psych, The Story of the Human Mind, which we'll be talking about today. Paul, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast.
1: Thank you. That's a nice introduction. I'm glad to be here.
0: Paul, you and I share in common Steve Pinker as a secondary advisor. And I want to begin going way back to the beginning of your research career. You and Steve wrote an article called Natural Language and Natural Selection, arguing for language not only as not only the human mind having evolved the abstract reasoning necessary for language processing, but language itself being this evolved adaptation. What's the story behind that article, which remains, I should add, very impactful. And I, I just read it in a cognitive science seminar and that's how we got in touch.
1: It was published in 1990. while oh, welcome my very first publication. And Steve and I were, if I remember right, there was an article written by Nassio Pietali Pomerini. I was, was a cognitive scientist of some note. He was at MIT uh, at the time. And he was very critical of adaptationist accounts of language. Drawing heavily on the work of Stephen Jay Gould and ideas of Noam Chomsky. And Steve and I got to talking about it. And we realized that we had a lot of respect for Massimo. but We disagreed with the article. So we would write a response. And the response got bigger and bigger. And soon it began to be a response to on the one hand, people said language couldn't evolve, needn't have evolved through natural selection because language, there's nothing special about language, just a general desire to communicate or general pattern recognition capacity. And on the other hand, people like Noam Chomsky, who think natural selection really plays very little role in a theory of how the mind has evolved. So we wrote it up. We turned it into a BS article of Behavioral Brain Sciences and our a journal which, ironically enough, I now edit, and so I can't publish it anymore. And, uh, and so the article came out, had tons of commentaries, very heated ones. And Steve and I had a big Tuesday night event, which they don't have anymore, I don't think, where Massimo Pitell Parmini and Stephen Jay Gould responded to us. And it was intellectually extremely interesting. and I was very excited by those issues. I haven't returned to them for a while, but it was a delight thinking about them and I was a huge delight working with Steve.
0: You mentioned there was a lot of commentary and maybe even controversy surrounding this article. And I remember a line in it, and it said something like, in one sense, our goal is actually very boring. We're just trying to prove that like almost every adaptation in every species is evolved. Human language is no different.
1: In some way, that's our tone. If our tone was belligerent or bemused or whatever our tone was, it was because of that. If, If somebody had said, Say it says, they say it now, or they said it when we wrote the article, b dance evolves through natural selection. The proper response is ho-hum. Like, of course it does. Say more. Say, that's not very interesting. Uh, of course b dance evolves through natural selection. It's not a miracle. It's not, that's perfectly plausible. But if you say human language evolves through natural selection, it's very controversial. And I think it became controversial due to the strong influence of Certain views, I think now, the field has moved away from. Uh, What struck me, what often struck me as a bizarre rejection of natural selection as a form of explanation, a certain simple-minded view about the mind. Stephen Jay Gould often believed that the reason why we're so smart is because the brain's so big. Nobody believes that anymore. There there has to be Mm -hmm. specialized systems in the brain. And it gets caught up at the time and still does in the politics over evolutionary psychology and everything. Those were exciting times. I remember like some people remember the 60s or setting fire Mm -hmm. to administrative buildings, wearing tie-dye, and Steve and I were doing the equivalent of that. It was, everybody had an opinion on that, and we were fighting some pretty major figures in the field, which Steve was entirely comfortable with, and I was utterly terrified.
0: (laughs) And this is at the same time that you were doing developmental work on children's language developments, and I'm very interested in the parallels that you see between developmental psychology and evolutionary psychology. If you think about brain development, we know that the brain regions that mature earliest during development in a single lifespan are also those that are most evolutionarily ancient. And then you as you move up to more recently involved cortical abstract thinking, that's also what matures latest in development. And that's connects to my research on adolescent brain development. The frontal regions are still yep. developing well into the teens and twenties. So how obvious was that connection to you at the beginning of your research? Did you always approach development from this ontology, ontogeny perspective?
1: I'll bounce back to that. But first, so who's your primary advisor? Steve
0: Leah Somerville.
1: And what do you do with Leah?
0: We do adolescent brain development very broadly. And my research specifically focuses on how hormones influence risk and reward processing during puberty.
1: Excellent. Excellent. I love the fact for some of the stuff, there's animal models. You read a paper and you hear about all this stuff about hormones and impulsivity, and then you read, you're talking about mice.
0: Yeah, there's not much good research on it in humans. Most of it is small and cross-sectional. Uh, so we're looking to a lot of animal research to build the theory, like theory on how testosterone impacts dopamine function in the brain and influences reward sensitivity and how that can be a mechanistic explanation for a lot of the sex differences that you see in risk and reward processing that at the ultimate evolutionary theory level seems to be related to sex differences in in reproductive strategy, where sperm is cheap, eggs are costly, males in general have more of this high risk, high reward orientation. And you see the sex difference in impulsivity emerge right around puberty. So that's where Steve comes in as a secondary advisor. We're talking a lot about the evolutionary theory
1: that I see backing my work. That sounds absolutely fascinating. And I do see evolution influencing your work because you asked the question, what's adaptive? And the t- answer, what's adaptive for men and adaptive for women, in, I think 99% of the time is the same thing. But mm-hmm. not always. There's the 1% where which involves reproductive strategies and so on, where there's divergence and a lot goes on with that divergence. And uh, so I can really see an evolutionary theory motivating your work. Absolutely. To go back to your question, Euphrates, there's this great phrase, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, which which is what you're talking about. And it's just the world's most fanciest way of saying that as a person grows up, they relive the evolutionary stages of of life so that a full-grown person is like a human and a half-grown person, like in there, like a child, is like somebody in an earlier evolutionary stage. And a baby is at its, its, uh-huh. its and like
0: More dominated by
1: the lizard brain, the immediate needs at the moment. Right, right. And intuitively, there's a little bit about this. You look at a toddler, and his toddler's just a beast. Just an Freud got this. Freud's looking at it. You see some sort of Neanderthal chomping around. And then when you get older, you get more self-control, more rationality. You're rising to a better level of civilization. Have you, I, I actually never thought about the connection at all during my work. I, I thought I was doing, I did my stuff with Susan Carey, who's my primary advisor, and I had a wonderful retirement party a little while ago that we were both at, and, and there stuff on semantics and word learning and ideas like that. I never connected it at all to evolutionary issues.
0: So this was just an independent project that grew out of meeting and talking with Steve?
1: Totally independent project. I never talked about my work with Steve or Susan. I never talked about Susan. Just totally independent.
0: At what point did you come across that idea of ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny? Did I say
1: that right? I think you did. And I think like last Tuesday, like I just heard about it very late in my career and mostly when reading about Piaget. So Jean Piaget, the great developmental psychologist, was interested in development. And the story goes, he wasn't interested in kids for kids' sake. He was interested in the evolution of the species the cognitive evolution of species, but because you don't have a time machine and fossils, brains don't, minds don't fossilize, you, you can look at kids as a surrogate for that. But it, I never he uses, took that idea seriously myself.
0: He uses this term genetic epistemology, yes, which right. really confused me because I was like, did behavioral genetics even exist back when Piaget was doing his thing? And then it turns out he means genetic in the sense of genesis, like the origins
1: right. of knowledge. That's right. That's exactly right. I don't think Piaget ever gave a single thought to genes. So the answer is, and maybe for good reason, the whole ontogeny, recapitulates phylogeny thing is Stephen Jay Gould himself wrote a long book on that, well, I think it was that title, and ontogeny and phylogeny or something, suggesting that sometimes it happens, sometimes there's the opposite. Sometimes there's there's neoteny, whereas, and I'm not going to get this right, but all I remember is, if you look at it, a baby chimp looks a lot like a person, like a human. Mm-hmm. face has a very human-like shape. I remember some pictures in Gould's book. The story's just much more complicated.
0: Right. So neoteny is the idea that some of your features become softer with age, and you actually look more like a younger or evolutionarily more ancient version of ourselves age? Yeah, I'll take your word for it. But I'm so not
1: that, sure that's right, but I'll take your word for it. So that's
0: the connection between something like the older you get, the more you look like, a baby chimp?
1: I'm trying to understand. best. <laughs> if I remember. All I remember, I remember these pictures from Gould's book, where he has pictures of baby chimps, and they look like they look like people. Like their faces, okay. their features look like people, and then they would look more chimp as they grow older. And I don't know what the moral is, but the general thing is that the ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, is in some rough sense has to be right. Babies mm-hmm. are alarmingly stupid, adults are smart, our distant ancestors were alarmingly stupid, we're smart. Getting more specific than that is some sort of law of nature, where as you grow up, you redevelop, you go through all the evolutionary stages. I think the strong version, which was developed by this guy Hegel, that's probably not true. How did you
0: transition from work on language development to moral development?
1: It was a really long trajectory, which only makes sense in retrospect, but I, I was very interested in language development. And when I was at MIT, I took courses with, with Chomsky. I was interested in syntactic development. I published papers in linguistics journals on the, on the development of syntax, but I was mostly interested in word learning. And for the first eight, 10 years of my career, I studied how to learn the meanings of words. And my first book was that title, and it's the University of Arizona. And, but as I became interested in word learning, I became increasingly interested in the contribution of our social understanding, our theory of mind, and how we learn words. Like how the child's ability to make sense of what another person's talking about or thinking about helps the kid figure out what word, what a word means. And then from that, it was a short step to moral psychology. I just was just, I was always interested and never did research on it. And actually, and to be honest, there was, I can't tell you say he was a student of mine because he was officially a student of Peter Salovey, but but David Pizarro and I would often talk. He was a graduate student when I arrived at Yale. And, and we, this was also provoked by a paper we disagreed with. Jonathan Haidt wrote a wonderful paper, something called The Emotional Dog and the Rational Tale or something like that in the Psych Review. And David and I disagreed with him. And David and I put, again, we wrote a response. And then we started to do work on it. I was always interested in disgust, influenced by Paul Rosen, and a relation between disgust and morality. Much later, I ended up working with Karen Wynn on, on baby morality. And then mm-hmm. I developed a career largely, but not exclusively, based on moral questions.
0: Jonathan Haidt's moral foundations theory, I know, is very grounded in evolutionary theory. So you mentioned disgust sensitivity, one of these moral foundation dimensions, in this theory is purity. And so purity yep. has to do with kind of conservatives beliefs concerning sex. And I think one of the evolutionary theories behind that is if you're going to have more conservative theories about sex, maybe part of it has to do with avoiding pathogens. And then if you're yep. physiologically more disgust sensitive, you tend to be, you tend to hold more conservative values concerning like moral purity issues. Is that a, a framework that you agree with or that comes into your work on moral development?
1: I'm very interested in the emotion of disgust and, and its relationship to morality. And you're right. There's some evidence that conservatives are more disgust-sensitive than liberals. I think there's been debate about it. I think there's been a recent meta-analysis suggesting it's probably true. These are not enormous effects. They may be, a, they may be explainable in other ways. Just as one example, some of the disgust-sensitivity questions, you might imagine getting being more tolerant as if you live in a city than if you live outside a city. And so then you might get to where conservatives and liberals live. But what does seem to be true is that disgust for both liberals and conservatives seem to be connected to morality in some interesting way. Maybe one way is something might gross you out, some sex act, for instance, and you say, that's how I know it's wrong. And many people explicitly make arguments based on disgust about that something is wrong. And there's been a lot of debate over how that works, the extent of the correlation between being disgust-sensitive and being morally disapproving. Kurt Gray has argued that a lot of the literature on purity and disgust is poorly thought out. And people are, a lot of core findings don't replicate. I guess my own take on it is there is definitely a relationship between disgust and disapproval and moral disapproval. and it's, But it's not a simple one.
0: Do you see that same finding in children might justify, this is nasty, therefore it's wrong.
1: Early on. So one reason why I don't take a nativist view on moral disgust is that of all of John Haidt's moral foundations, the purity one seems to not emerge very early. There's a lot of evidence, some from my own work, some from other people's work, that notions of harm and fairness show very early. More controversially, some idea of Hierarchy or groupiness might show up early too. But purity, disgust comes in late. Kids are young kids, you can't disgust them at all. And I think there's a good evolutionary reason for that. Imagine these kids, this gets surrounded by his urine and his and feces constantly grossed out. And oh my God, I'm disgusted. This is what a mm-hmm. horrible fate. So I think disgust kicks in later. And it might be that the, uh, developing relationship between disgust and morality really is mediated a lot through culture.
0: On one hand, you see that sort of a natural association between things that are disgusting and things that are wrong. Sometimes, especially if you're thinking of like religious purity, you get these ideas of sin, and oftentimes it's pleasure that's at the root of sin. I saw an ad for chocolate recently, and the tagline was something like, sinfully delicious. So that's an example where it's almost recapitulated as A good thing and there's a paradox there right on one hand evolution would prime us to think that what is gross is bad but then on the other hand there's been this sort of cultural evolution of the things that we evolved to find good we're actually reframing as bad there's some moral value in something like asceticism
1: yeah we're complicated critters there's and there's different ways to go about that there's a paper just got published in bbs and I'm embarrassed. I'm blank on name and authors. One is Nicholas Beaumont, but I think it's Leo Leo Fatucci was the first author of a paper in BBS talking about Puritanical morality, and he argues that we moralize the capacity to exert self control, and this is, explains why across cultures we disapprove of people who are gluttonous or slothful or lustful. Many, and in fact, he says many of the sort of restrictions we have about sexuality it isn't so much that they disgust us, it's that they're seen as involving a loss of control. So in that way, mm-hmm. avoiding the good can be bad. In some of my own work, my own other work, I've been interested in how we're drawn to, to the bad, how the bad can be good, why we would like to do things that are painful or disgusting or violent, sometimes to show, off, show us, us off show off our abilities to others or our traits, sometimes to uh, express our autonomy and so on.
0: It makes sense to me that inhibitory control
1: can be seen as a
0: moral good. Do you see the same thing about other features like intelligence or strength or athleticism? On one hand, you have good in the fitness sense. Then on the other hand, you have good in the moral sense. And most people, I think, would say those two are separate. But I'm wondering if there's some sort of Common evolutionary thread that would ha- have us associate them.
1: I think that they really are separate. I think that the idea that a lot of our positive traits are good to have because they advertise us to mates, to friends, to to colleagues, to people around us. And one reason why beauty evolved is because it's an it's a it's a signal that we are lovable and to be mated with. And so too for intelligence and strength and so on. I think of that as on a separate track as than morality, which involves a different kind of trait. Maybe also a trait which could be appealing. Goodness can be appealing in the right doses. How connected they are is interesting. I, my, my bet would be there's some bleed from one to the other. People who are exceptionally good-looking are often thought of as morally better. And there's some findings, maybe not of the sort that would replicate, but there's some findings showing that very good people, very good-looking people, For mock juries, get off with lesser sentences or get declared innocent more often. I don't think it's something as simple as that these are all molded together into one thing. I just think there's a halo effect where you assume somebody's good in one domain, you assume they're good in another domain.
0: Do you see that in children as well? Or is this attractiveness moral association unique to maybe after puberty once you become sexually active?
1: That's a great question. I don't know. I'm sure somebody looked at that. I don't think you find it in very young children. But easy enough experiment to run. You show an eight-year-old picture of two kids. One's conventionally like good-looking. Another one's not. And you say, which of the kids do you think stole the cookies?
0: If you do see it only emerging in adolescence or adulthood, maybe there's some sex hormones at work there. That would be an interesting study. <laughs> You're an example
1: of a, for a man with a hammer, everything looks like an ale. Exactly. Yeah. But, but if, if the hammer is sex, there's a lot of things that that I think, I think. The, the general schema, I wonder what happens when puberty hits, is a really interesting one. And I think your intuition is right to a lot of things switch at that point. Beauty is an interesting case
0: study because to to the extent that mute beauty is signaling genetic fitness, it's largely genetic lottery. And when I think about the types of people I'm attracted to versus the types of people I would want to be attracted to, and if you imagine that everyone has some sort of utility function where like different traits that have different weights and it you get a net result of how net attractive is this person and i feel and i think in our culture we have this idea that we should weight more heavily something like personality traits and focus less on superficial traits but of course that's the first thing you see when you see someone you see their appearance and even just focusing on appearance Some things are very in your control, like diet and exercise. You can get the ideal physique. And then other things, it's just the symmetry of your face. That's something you're born with. So when I think cognitively, I'm like, I should be more attracted, therefore, to someone who really takes care of themselves and is maximizing everything that's in their control, even if just genetically, they don't have the most attractive face. But I notice I struggle with that. There's just this maybe innate thing that has me attracted more to some faces than others, even if it's this genetic lottery that gives some people traits that I like more and some that
1: don't. Yeah, you're a mammal. It's the <laughs> way it is. In some way, you think is extremely un unjust. There's We are drawn to things like subtle variations in the symmetry of how far the eyes are apart and all these, we do this math on faces so that You have a face that takes your breath away with its beauty, and another one, meh, and it's just a subtle genetic variation. Things like height matters a lot to women. You can't imagine something you would have chosen less than how tall you are. I'm not sure, though, I'm not sure what's wrong with it, is that you choose, you don't choose how you look physically, but you choose these other things. Because at some level, you know how physically fit you are, you could do exercises and everything, but genes play a huge role in that in 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 how heavy you are and how, or how slim you are how muscular you are and and even for things like and what about things like intelligence kindness all the good things the only things you're supposed to be proud of if you said when i'm looking for an attractive person i look at the facial geometry i go boo you're a pig and then but then you say when i look for an uh, attractive person i look at how kind they are and their love and i say good you're a good person Good. But they didn't choose either one. Uh-huh. I didn't choose this. Place, but I also didn't choose this temperament, this intelligence. This
0: is a good place to have that nature nurture topic discussion then. Nature Nurture podcast. You talk about this in psych. Maybe the first place we could start here is an overview of behavioral genetics, how that research works and how it's influenced psychology. Cause it it seems like we have this sort of intuitive belief that, I don't know, some, something like the more physical a trait is, the more we can attribute it to genes, but psychological traits aren't really genetically influenced. Yep. It, it does just say something about a person's inherent essence, almost like intuitive dualism, as if you have your body and you have your mind and the mind is separate and not influenced by genes. But of course we know that it is. So that's an interesting starting point.
1: Yeah, and in fact, Iris Barrent has argued that one thing influencing our notion of what's innate and what's not is a sort of intuitive dualism, where we think physical things can be innate and affected by genes, but immaterial things, which for many people include psychological traits, can't be affected in that way because they aren't, they aren't the sort of things genes can affect. And that's plainly mistaken. I guess the thing, one thing to realize about behavioral genetics is that there's two questions psychologists tend to deal with in a nature-nurture debate. One is where sort of universal properties to people come from. I know how to talk and you know how to talk. How much of that is hardwired? How much of that has to do with our environment? I can see in color. You could see in color how much of that. Behavioral genetics is, is interested in something different. There, that field is interested in variations between people. Not what we all have in common, but ways in which we're all different. And, and, and these are different techniques to try to pull apart the effects of the genes, call that innate, from the effects of the environment, call that learning. And although a lot of environmental effects aren't learning, it could involve like what you eat or whether it's lead in the environment or so on. And behavior genetics try to pull these apart and use these methods. And the findings are, to a very first approximation, just as with something like how tall we are or the color of our eyes or the color of our skin, how strong we are and so on. There's a substantial genetic role for things like intelligence, extroversion, propensity to become schizophrenic, religiosity, and so on. And then there's also a pretty powerful environmental role, just as with the physical things. How tall you are depends a lot on on what you eat, particularly when you're a kid. How smart you are depends on all sorts of things, including your schooling and stuff like
0: that. There are two broad ways to test that, and... So one, one would be like actually doing the genome analysis itself. And you can get, if, the, if you have very large sample size, you can do these genome-wide association studies. But then more common in psychology is using twin studies, where the idea is if you have two siblings raised in the same environment, two twins, you have identical twins, which share 100% of their genes. You have fraternal twins, which share 50% of their genes. And then you could compare them to regular siblings raised a year apart, like to average people raised in separate households or to adopted kids raised in the same household, like all of that, you can look for comparisons. And I'm sure you could add more detail there.
1: Yeah, you have So there's all these methods. You look at identical twins raised apart. If genes play a big role, they should be very similar. You look at fraternal twins versus identical twins. If identical twins are more similar, that suggests genes are playing more of a role. If they're just the same, it suggests environment plays a big role. Now, for all of, and then you have adoption studies, for instance, is a whole other way of doing things. So if it's how I raise my kids that make them what they are, it shouldn't matter whether they're my biological kids or kids that I have adopted. They should be affected by me the same way. On the flip side, if it's one's genetic nature that makes you what you are, I should be very similar to my children because we share 50% of our genes, but not very similar at all to an adopted child. Now, for all of this, it gets more complicated. And this is why the more direct genetic analyses, I think, can be more telling. So, for instance, suppose you find identical twins are more similar, grow up to be more similar than fraternal twins. You say, genes, genes are playing a role. But that's true, but the way the genes might be playing a role is that we might treat two individuals who look alike the same way. And there you get a sort of subtle interaction where the genetic similarity is generating a sort of environmental similarity. When people interested in behavioral genetics wrestle with all these ways, they wrestle with the fact that heritability differs across different environments. In very, in very good environments, heritability tends to be high because everybody max out on their genetic trait. In bad environments, it tends to be lower. And finally, it's that the, the route from gene to an environmental effect, and I talk about this a lot in my book, is often complicated. So suppose some kids uh, seem to have a sort of genetic variant that leads them to do better in school. People are very quick to say, well, it must make them smarter. Maybe it makes them more docile. because And teachers like docile students, and they treat them better and give them better grades. Maybe it affects their skin color. And in a racist society, kids with one skin color are going to get a better education than kids with another skin color. So knowing that there's a genetic force doesn't leaves open a lot of different explanations for how it could do its work.
0: There's another axis to this nature nurture debate where when you're asking whether it's genes or environment or both, there's some level of determinism involved, some level of these things outside of your control in early development are gonna shape your behavior and your personality and really everything about you. So then the other axis would be. Ranging from like complete determinism to complete free will. And I'm sure this bears on the question of moral responsibility and moral yeah. development. So there's a few interesting angles we could go down there. One is just start starting with as a developmental psychologist, how do you look at the problem of free will? And then another is how do people's perceptions of free will influence their moral judgments? And then a final one is. How do children look at that problem of free will?
1: Good questions. I'll tell you my, my I try to take them roughly in order, but I'll tell you my take on it, which is that I'm a compatibilist. I think there's sense, which is that if you choose to do some things, you don't choose to do another, other thing? You and I chose to do this podcast together. But, but if as we're walking a podcast, the roof falls in on us, we didn't choose to get crushed. You, these are sensible distinctions. But to say that there's a metaphysical free will, seems to me to be ridiculous in that you didn't choose. Everything that's caused you to be what you are is either your genes or your environment. You didn't choose either one. And to me, that's, I think, a good argument. You get a lot of If the world was different, you'd be different. If we were to rerun the world again and give you the same genes and environment, you'd be exactly the same. And so it's not as if And sometimes you hear people talk about this. It's interesting, but my choice about people's decisions whether to be criminals, it's 49% genes and 49% environment. But then there's this mysterious other component where that's where they choose. There's no other mysterious component. So I don't think there's free will in any sense of stepping outside the causal world. I do think that moral judgments... Moral attributions are, are often involved the assumption of some degree of choice. If I accuse you of, it's just at, at, a, at a basic level, not a sort of metaphysical choice, but an everyday sense of choice. If you, if, if you drive into somebody in your car, you're arrested, and then you say, look, my brakes failed. I was stomping on my brakes. I did not choose to do it because, I, oh, okay, you're blameless. On the other hand, if you said, I didn't hit the brakes. I was just secure what what happened then you get blamed. I think notions of could you have done otherwise in a sort of folk sense are very deep in our moral judgments. Now, the next thing you might say is then, if I'm a determinist and think that there's no such thing, do I believe that there's no such thing as moral judgments? And as that's complicated, I'm incompatible. I think we're determinists. But I think there's a space for sort of moral judgments. As for what kids think, I don't know. I did some work with Adam Baer a long time ago. We were very interested in kids' beliefs about free will. And most people believe in free will in a way that I think is untenable. People believe it. And and looking at moral responsibility. I think sooner or later, of course, you get the insight that moral responsibility is related to freedom talent. But I don't know when it emerges and how it emerges.
0: Are you familiar with Robert Sapolsky's arguments about free will and moral responsibility? Specifically? No, I, no I'm, I'm not. I'm familiar with some of so his work, but not that. He's a hardcore determinist. Yeah. And... I wouldn't say, I don't think he would label himself as a compatibilist. So when he talks about moral judgment, I think he views it as largely unjustified because, you know, when you're placing yourself in the role of judge, yeah. you're taking for granted all of the advantages that you've been handed, and probably not fully aware of disadvantages that other people, bad moral agents, might have had that contributed. Their circumstances. Mm-hmm. So he views really our whole legal system as a sham, at least as far as I understood his argument. Because it's a, one thing you could say about that is that our moral values and punishment are things that evolved really just to keep society in order, right? Even if it's a whole deterministic process, deterministically, you lock up the criminals so that they don't harm yeah. the rest of us. And I think that part, the key views is inevitable, but then there's the idea of convincing yourself that you're doing some moral good while you're doing that is where you get some, some ego coming in that he doesn't think is morally justified. Although it's interesting that to make that criticism, there's a moral standard at which you're holding the world against.
1: Yeah, if you're a moral nihilist, you may think that there's no such thing as morality at all. And that's, so nobody's doing anything good or anything bad. I, I don't share this. I, I think that the points you ended up making about this of more utilitarian point seems to be right, which is that I don't think our, I don't think our current justice system is perfect, but I think the idea of, of, I think we need something like it. We need basically punishments for people who do bad things because punishments, first thing, once you punish somebody, it might dissuade them from doing it in the future. More to the point, the existence of punishments Dissuades people. Now, I also think that it's very difficult to go through life thinking of, of people as automatons running through pre-specified programs and making no choices. I think that's a very strange way to look at the world. It's not tenable, and at some level, it is. It isn't even true. I think we I do make moral choices. I choose to do good things, I choose to do bad things. Sometimes I willingly decide to do something I know is wrong. It's just that this is all determined mm-hmm. and it would have always happened. My I advisor is too far to take from all of that and say we so we shouldn't reward and punish and so on. My advisor Leah has been doing
0: some consulting in the juvenile justice space alongside BJ Casey who's at Yale about to what extent Should what we've learned about adolescent brain development in the last 20 years influence our legal system? Because the way it currently stands, an 18-year-old is deemed as like a fully moral, morally responsible agent capable of making rational decisions. And then the science of brain development is telling us, you don't really achieve that full capacity for rational decision-making until later in your 20s. So should you really be eligible for... The death penalty or life in prison and but it gets more complicated than that because even if you say no and you say something like we shouldn't punish people until they achieve or we shouldn't make them eligible for the full range of punishment until they have the full range of autonomy over their decision making when you look at individual differences you get into more complicated topics like brain age or even intelligence and For some reason, it seems justified to say we shouldn't make children as responsible for their actions as adults, but there's something that seems wrong about saying we shouldn't make less intelligent people less responsible for their actions, even though it it almost sounds like the same argument.
1: I think it is is the same argument. And we do Uh feel the same argument when it comes down to severe differences in intelligence.
0: But then when we're looking at typical variation, people don't say that especially if you're smarter than average, that you should be pum- punished more harshly.
1: Yeah. People also don't say that Donald Trump, for instance, shouldn't be charged with various crimes because as somebody who's very old, imagine mm-hmm. he has significant limitations in his brain functioning as well. It's like Sapolsky, the problem goes away. Sapolsky said autonomy is, we're never autonomous. So either give the death penalty to everybody or give it to nobody. Put everybody in prison and put, it, put nobody in prison. But you're asking, I think, there are more a question, which I think is more attuned to the way things are, which is at some level, we understand that some degree of control, self-control and, and decision-making and so on are, are necessary for moral responsibility. I'm wondering isn't, if... isn't a proper answer for an 18-year-old, maybe an 18-year-old doesn't have the cognitive powers of a 30-year-old, but if you don't have zero, certainly, certainly you hold an 18-year-old morally responsible. I have kids. I hope I thought 18 year olds morally responsible. How about when they were eight years old? You hold them morally responsible too. The kid steals money from from the mother's purse or something or hits his brother for no reason. You say you shouldn't have mm-hmm. done that. You know mm-hmm. go sit in the corner, at whatever people do with misbehaving kids these days. Now, you don't say we're gonna have to put you in front of a firing squad, but I think moral responsibility to some extent goes down pretty low, pretty early. It's just not as if there's a continual point. I don't know. I and mean, what do you think of the death penalty issue? Suppose, for the sake of some people are against the death penalty, period. And then they, and then basically they make these arguments just to make sure fewer people get the death penalty. But they really don't believe anybody should. But imagine you thought some people should have it. What do you think the cutoff should be?
0: I don't know. I've read some work on genetic essentialism, and the idea is that ge- Judges who believe that you're more likely to, let's say, commit certain crimes if you have a genetic predisposition, or maybe they're dealing with hypothetical vignettes, but the main finding is that the more genetically attributable some behavior is, the more sympathetic people are to it. And yet, if I'm remembering this correctly, like the empathy goes up, but the punishments don't change. If anything, sometimes the punishments go up because there's this thought of yeah, on one hand, it was outside of their control, so I don't really want to blame them. But on the other hand, it was outside of their control, and this is this is just like a bad egg, and they're going to keep behaving this way outside of their control.
1: Yeah, and someone that seems confused, right? Suppose I'm a criminal at eighteen, and because in a large part it has to do with genetic predisposition. Suppose, alternatively, I'm a criminal at age eighteen, that's to do with how my parents raised me. It's not clear. The first case is any more immutable than the second. The fact, it, the sort of origin of something is conceptually independent of how well you could fix it. I have, a, I have terrible eyesight, and it's not because of my environment, it's because of my genes. I got it from my parents. I got, But now I wear contact lenses, and I see much better. So there, something genetic can be changed.
0: Do you think people are intuitive Bayesians about how experiment, experience shapes... Your behavior and your viewpoints with the idea that the younger you are, the less experience you have, the less priors you have influencing you. So your entire cognitive model is more open to change. And the older you are, the more fixed in your ways you become.
1: I think there has to be some truth to that. Apparently, it's very difficult to be a magician and do magic shows for four year olds or three year olds because you do the trick. Pull a hat out, and there's a, there's a rabbit there. And the kids go. The kids say, "I see all sorts of weird stuff all the time." That's not <laughs> Adults freak out. Adults have much more rigid expectations about the physical world. So, in broad outlines, yeah, I think kids just know a lot less about the world, and so they're harder to surprise. In your own research on
0: moral development, do you see parallels with, or do old theories about moral development, like Piaget and Kohlberg, does that hold up in modern developmental moral psychology?
1: No. Sometimes old observations have a lot of weight. So I think it was Piaget who pointed out that young kids tend to be very focused on the consequences of an act when making a moral judgment, how bad it was. As you get older, you take intention more into it. You, you could just knock down a wonderful thing and cause a lot of damage but if you did it totally by accident, it's not your fault, I wouldn't blame you. Maybe a kid says, oh, you did something bad because just because of the result. And so somebody like, like Fiery Cushman in your department has done some really nice developmental work building on that insight and pulling it apart and explaining other things. And so there's a lot of interesting insights from people like Piaget and Kohlberg that could be reinforced. I think that also on a certain general level, the idea of the kid becoming more abstract and more sophisticated morally is right. But I don't think the specific theories are taking that seriously anymore.
0: This is a good jumping off point to talk about historical psychology and the influence of these old leading figures in the field, some of which are, it's more psychoanalytical. It's more based on intuition and psychology as a whole. You talk about this in psych has moved to become more of an empirical science in the last hundred years or so. And do you think Freud is the right place to start or would
1: you go even earlier? I you uh, could go as 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 early as you want. My my advisor as an undergraduate was, was John McNamara. And he saw he was very sensitive to continuity between psychology and philosophy. So he says he would say we should start with Aristotle or Plato. Okay. Let's, but let's start let's, there. Let's, but let's not let's start let's be mindful of, of life is short and so on. And start with Freud. Freud was, yeah, somebody name a psychologist, so name you Freud. And they're not wrong to do so. He was immensely influential. So
0: can we talk about some of the history that you outline in psych, beginning with Freud and his influence on the field, good and bad, and how it brings us here to where psychology is much more data driven, much more experimental?
1: Yeah. So Freud is famously had a very big conception of the mind, a very rich theory, the psychoanalytic theory. Freud viewed himself as a scientist, and Freud would be sad to hear these future people in 2023 saying he wasn't scientific and he didn't do research and didn't collect data, because he collected an enormous amount of data, he'd say, through his psychoanalytic practice. Now we don't view it as that trustworthy, but he was he believed he saw himself as a scientist. And he had this Baroque, complicated theory of the mind with penis envy and Oedipus complex and the oral stage and hysteria and defense mechanisms and all sorts of stuff. And many people would say almost all of that's wrong. There's not much of Freud-specific theories that remain. But on the other hand, I include a chapter of him in my in my book because I like Freud. I think Freud was in some way brilliant. Had a lot of really cool ideas. And I think his fundamental idea of the dynamic unconscious, that we don't know why we do what we do, we don't know why we believe what we believe, is stood the test of time. It's actually part now of bread and butter psychology. And, and I think that Freud deserves a lot of credit for that.
0: Right now, we just call the unconscious processing, we frame it in more computational terms.
1: Yeah, I think there's a the last one we like, embarrassed. Social psychologists talk so much in terms of the unconscious, but they never like acknowledging Freud. Another way I put it is they're like a pharmaceutical company. I've got to start selling meth. Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about it. And it's not just, it's true we often talk about unconscious in computational terms, but not always. Take your political psychologist, and you want to know why people voted for Trump or why people voted for Biden. And so somebody comes up to you and says, well, you should just ask them. Then you would know. And a political psychologist, even if we know people could be honest with us, you got to understand, people may not really know why they voted for one versus the other. They may have an idea, but might not be, they might not be right. When they say that, they're channeling Freud. The first thing, they're right mm-hmm. to say that. We may not know why we voted for who we voted for. And second, it's pure Freud.
0: That's reminding me of studies, again, on legal judgment, looking at one of the biggest predictors Punishment was whether the judge
1: had lunch or not. I've heard of that. That stuff is not, that's this so this is part of the, and in some ways, the backlash against the unconscious mind. That was one of the big, one of the examples of how we're primed by forces that beyond our control. I'm not sure that one replicated. I've heard more recently. It didn't replicate and a lot of the sort of findings that, that of that sort have failed to replicate. On the other hand, the fact that judges are moved in their decisions by factors that they are unaware of, to me seems totally and entirely right. Uh-huh.
0: And not only that, but then we'll rationalize why we were influenced by different reasons other than what we might have actually be, been influenced by. You see this with the split brain studies, yeah. where if, if you have a divider where people with split brain patients can only see one side and... You give them written instructions that only one eye can see, and it says, pick up this pencil, and then you ask them, so if I get this right, so that would mean that they have to see the written instruction on their left eye so that it goes to right brain, but then if you ask them verbally, that's going to be left brain processing it, so the left brain won't be aware of the text that the right brain saw, and then verbally, they'll give like some entirely different explanation, like, I picked up this pencil because I like to draw, and they won't be aware of the instructions they were given. Am I remembering that right?
1: I think that is basically right. Their left, right might have got switched at some point, but it seems basically fundamentally right. And there's also there's other experiments with people perfectly intact brains. There's one study. I'm embarrassed. I forget who did this. But but they, there's a difficult choice. You have to choose which of these two things you like. And and you choose this. You think about it and you choose this one. An unbeknownst to you, there's a switcheroo. And you get the one you didn't choose. Later, you're confronted with the one you didn't choose. And then you say, why did you choose that one? And people don't say, I didn't choose it. They say, it's better in a certain regard, and they'll tell the story. So often our rationale, you talked about John Height, and John made this point more generally regarding mor- morality, where often we make post hoc justifications for decisions that were already done. And the split brain studies illustrate this. Some other studies illustrate this. We're storytellers. And we don't have, we don't typically have direct access to the reasons why we, we do things. In your life, people are going to ask you questions like, this. so why do you get into psychology? And so why do you study in that field? Why do you live where you live? What made you kids, you crazy kids decide to get married? And so on. And people typically don't say, I don't know. Who knows? How the hell do I know? People give you stories. And but the stories, I just honestly believe the stories are just stories and often bear no relationship to the truth. The there are movies is the Dark Knight where there's, you see the Dark Knight. So there's a scene where Heath Ledger tells the stories of how he got his scars. Mm-hmm. And then later in the movie, he tells it in entirely different story. And I just like that. I think there's something very profound about that scene. Is
0: it contributing to him as an unhinged character? Just Maybe. that you think you're getting to understand him. You think you're building this backstory and then he just completely switches it.
1: That's right. That's mm. right. That's right. And the first story gets our sympathy. So it, it, it does that. I guess what I would say is we're more like that than we think. I finished a long time ago. I wrote this book and people are very, in, I wrote a book about empathy and people are very interested in why I wrote the book. And I had, and so if I do interviews, you say, so why do you write the book? And I have two stories, actually. I a lot. And one was a bit longer than the other, and the other ones a bit funnier. And I would just, depending on my mood, choose one story, and they're different stories. But it's not like I'm being psych- psychopathic. It's that I wasn't sh- never sure which story was true. So I just would do them both.
0: There's, so there's this idea of both being true, or and really there's going to be a whole like web of factors. That's right. That cause us to become who we are, and it's like the more you get to know someone, the more you start to fill in the blanks. But then it's almost like you can do random sampling. And when you're meeting a complete stranger, it's just the context that determines which parts of yourself you start to show first. So we met in an academic context. We're getting to know our academic selves here. Don't know much about each other's lives outside of this. And then if we met, like playing basketball or something, we might not even know we have the psychology in common unless we got to talking about it.
1: Yep. And I think the hardest thing to come to grips with is that there may be a point where we ourselves will never know the right story. We'll never know why we did something. And I think that, I think, again, it's a Freudian insight. I really do think we are rational decision makers, that that human rationality is extraordinary. It's an extraordinary power. But I also think that many things lie beneath the surface either because they're simply just running beneath the surface and we don't have any access to them, or sometimes, in a very Freudian way, it's, it, be, it behooves us not to not to know about them. Moral acts are often one thing. I think every a lot of people who say abuse their kids, beat their kids, they get some sort of pleasure out of it. But, they also, but they, the story they tell themselves is, I'm a good person doing this for a good reason. A lot of people but, do evil in the world. Very few of them rub their hands together and give an evil cackle and say, I'm an evil guy.
0: We've talked about development, evolution, moral psychology, very social cognitive issues. So we've talked about most of the major branches of psychology, except for the one that most people probably think about first, which is clinical.
1: I there's maybe the one reason for it is I'm not a clinician. So I have a chapter on my book on clinical psychology. I love the chapter. I think it's, I think it's, it may be the sort of part of the book. The book is written so that you don't have to read in sequence. You can just go to whatever you want first. Probably most people might go to the very end and read about happiness, but a lot of bit, a lot of people read about mental illness. What do we know about depression or anxiety or schizophrenia? And it was a wonderful chapter for me to write because as I was writing, I was thinking deeply about it. There's the idea of a professor on Gilligan's Island. I hope this isn't too dated to reference, but he knew everything and I don't know everything. I got my fields in psychology. I know and knows I don't. So I read a lot, and I had a lot of help with it. I sent it to four friends who are experts in the field, including one of them at Harvard. And, and then they helped me out help with it. And it's fascinating. It's it, In some way, it's the part of psychology that matters most. I think my work is pretty cool. It sounds like your work mm-hmm. is pretty cool, too. But the work is really cool. This really is the work which maybe cures schizophrenia. Or helps people with phobias or obsessive compulsive disorder. That would mm-hmm. really be something.
0: A lot of these traits that contribute to something that would be a diagnosable mental illness. It's an arbitrary cutoff, which is yeah. one one of the places that clinical psychology gets criticized. Is like everyone is going to have some degree of anxiety or depression or whatever else. And there's a meaningful side to it. Like. There, there is generally going to be a place where this can be impacting you so much that it interferes with like your daily functioning. So it's going to be useful to put a label on that and motivate people to get treatment. But then on the other hand, there's the question of, well, these are just normal continuums of traits, and some people are going to be more extreme than the other. So then there's the question of, like, when you're dealing with someone who's, say, mm-hmm. super anxious, Is this something you can fix or is this like an almost a natural outcome of when you have a whole normal distribution of traits, some people are going to be at the extreme and sometimes those extremes are bad?
1: So you're raising a lot of good points, but I don't see any of this sort of a criticism of clinical psychology. Mm -hmm. There's a debate and talk about this towards the end of my chapter. There's a debate in clinical psychology, a very vibrant, good one, about the extent to which different disorders are points on a continuum, cut off points in a continuum versus discrete disorders pedophilia a sexual attractiveness to children seems likely to be a sort of thing that is, is is an illness in and of itself it's not like all people are on a continuum and some people find 19 year olds attractive some 18 year olds some 17 year olds all the way to age three and it's just a continuum. and it just rather it seems like there's something special going on with
0: you know what i'm going to come at that one with my hammer so there's Absolutely okay. no evidence supporting this. But intuitively, I think back to when I was a teenager and it's like, as a teenage boy, I was attracted to teenage girls my own age, in addition to being attracted to adult women. And as I got older, the band, the age band, which of uh, who I was attracted to shifted around me. So the older I got, there reached a point in, let's say I'm 13 and I find 13 year old girls attractive. Or maybe I found at that age, everyone 12 and older attractive. And then when I was 15, I found maybe 14 and older attractive. And now I'm 23. And even looking at 18-year-old, 19-year-old undergrads who are technically adults, they just seem babyish. It's way too young. It it would feel wrong to date them. So there's, and I think that's what most people experience. So whatever this process of Mm -hmm. that band of attraction shifting with age as you develop, maybe it's hormone related, maybe it's not, but I'm wondering if pedophilia is something like that process not happening. So, cause it's going to be normal to yeah. some degree when you're a kid to be attracted to other kids, but, and then there's a process that grows you out of that. And I'm wondering if pedophilia is a
1: failure to achieve that growing out of it. I think there's and that's a very interesting idea. If so, it would capture more and there's a technical term for it, but it would capture more people who are sexually attracted to 14, 15, 16-year-old girls. But if you're talking about three, four, and five-year-olds, there's never a phase where people have an act of mature sexual attraction to those. You didn't feel that way when you were 15. And and so it just seems like a thing in and of itself. If you don't like that example, there, there are other examples. And some controversial. Is an alcoholic a special kind of person with a special problem, similar to somebody who has COVID? Or cancer? Or is it really we all, you know, dessert, we all drink? Some people have, like drinking, some people like drinking more, some people like. At a certain point, we say, whoa, there, that's too much. Now, when it comes to the most common disorders, depression, mood disorders, and anxiety disorders, a lot of people argue that it is a continuum. But, and here I want to gently push back on some things you said, which is just being on a continuum doesn't mean it's not real. And it doesn't mean that it can't be treated. Suppose there's no such thing as major depression as a separate category distinct from everything else. Rather, major depression is a word you give to people who are just way more depressed than we think people should be. Just in the same way you might say that person's too introverted or too open-minded or something like that. Still, you may want to Treat that person. That person might be suffer will be suffering from extreme distress, will be showing off certain problems, and they and they may benefit from treatment. The continuum view does raise certain moral and political questions, because you have to figure out where do you draw the line? And to what extent is to what extent when dealing with somebody who say is on the autistic spectrum, should you say about that person? look, this person has a problem and should be treated and make their life better. As opposed to say, this person is fine. They're maybe neuroatypical, but they're fine. The world needs to change. If they're having a tough time in the world, that's the world's fault. That's our society's fault. But I think that in the extremes, you really get into full-blown mental illness. Somebody who's a paranoid schizophrenic. Someone who is in a deep depression, that they cannot leave the bed, they can't toilet themselves, they can't breathe, you then say, boy, this person's miserable and needs help. And maybe it's a discrete disorder, maybe it's a point on a continual, but still they need help. There's this intuitive
0: appeal to finding a silver lining to negative traits, especially those that are outside of someone's control. I don't know how much of it is actually real. In popular culture, you see these tropes of either downsides to good traits like intelligence, like pe- people say ignorance is bliss, or potential upsides to something like, y- if you have this depressive temperament, maybe you're more likely to be some sort of creative genius. Yeah, is, is there any truth
1: in that? We definitely have this sort of desire to find upsides. I think sometimes there's upsides to be found. Going back to neuroatypical people, like people on the spectrum, there's arguments, that the sort of autistic skills are actually real to some extent superpowers and very useful. You could imagine cases where being highly neurotic could make you very careful. It's been argued that manic depressive people, bipolar disorder, during their manic phases can be extraordinarily productive and imaginative. So yeah, I think that's possible. I think for the most part, anybody who suffered from depression or from a serious anxiety disorder like panic attacks. <laughs> we'll say, yeah, I understand there's these exceptions, but there's really no bright side to having panic attacks. There's no superpower associated with it. There's no bright side to an obsessive compulsive disorder. They have to wash your hands 50 times a day, or the, our social phobia is so bad you can't leave the house. You get these mm-hmm. schizophrenic delusions and so on. It's nice. And I think people often an agenda, oh my gosh, there must be something valuable in here. But Think of it like like getting COVID. Let's talk about the good parts about getting COVID. No, COVID could be bad. It could be a little bit bad. It could be terrible. But there's no you know, developed ability to see in the dark. You can't fly. What about cancer? All that. So same with mental disorders, I think.
0: It says something about our psychology that even when we have these objectively bad things in the world, there's a temptation to rationalize the silver lining. Is that like a coping mechanism?
1: Yeah, I think it is. I think it I think for some things, for some things it's some way in which sufferers themselves can say maybe this isn't so bad. Are people who love sufferers? I said cancer being all bad, but not even that. Some people say, "Oh, the thing about getting cancer is is it'll turn you into a more spiritual, better person." You get mm-hmm. you get post post-traumatic growth. And you'll come out of it better on the other side. I don't believe any of that, but it's nice to believe. And if I or somebody I love had cancer, it'd probably be nice for to believe it. You wrote Psych for
0: a popular audience as a very general, broad introduction to psychology. Is there anything that we, there's, a, I'm sure a whole bunch that we haven't touched on in this conversation, but in our last 10 minutes or so, anything else you want to highlight? Yeah.
1: The book, it's an impossible book to cover in a conversation. As we're having a very boring four hour conversation, we didn't talk about false memories. We didn't talk about the science of happiness. We didn't talk about Skinner. We didn't talk about language learning. And that's all to the good. We, what you did is you sampled on the really cool parts of it. At one point, you just mentioned quickly, I interrupted, I think, about going meta and asking me about being a, an editor for a journal.
0: As an editor, you read, is it all of the submissions or is it more like when you're a reviewer and you get assigned specific things related to your area of expertise?
1: So I'm a co-editor and I co-edited with Barbara Finley. And very roughly, she takes the sort of right-wing stuff, the brain stuff, the more scientific stuff. And I take the more lefty stuff, the social psychology, philosophy, linguistics, more cognitively split. So I'll say I read about half of the papers we get in, and I triage. We triage out about eighty percent, and maybe ninety percent as inappropriate. We're a very unusual journal, and then I get to. to and then the rest end up going for review, and if they get accepted, they we have a whole commentary process, which is a riot. How do you have time for anything else? i I have time if you have any other questions. But
0: oh, I meant keeping up with. All the new publications, oh. even in a single journal, is a lot. And then thinking about all the dozens and dozens of journals there are just in psychology. So that's just one journal. And one, one journal has many publications coming out. Actually, I don't know how regularly scheduled they are, but at least every month, right? And you have dozens of journals in a particular field, and you have many fields. And psychology is super interdisciplinary. We've talked about philosophy, neuroscience, linguistics, all of these interdisciplinary areas coming together. There's so much to read. How do
1: you decide what to prioritize? Um, I don't have a system. It's not, to some extent, I get regular journal announcements for certain journals, like Cognition. I love. And so I'll look at them and see if anything interesting comes up. I'm on Twitter a lot, which in some ways is not a very good habit, but that's where I get announcements for really cool papers in my area. Your colleague Dan Gilbert just has this amazing paper that just came out in Nature, so I heard about it through Twitter, and on moral the illusion of moral decline. And and so I just I read a lot. I'm whatever my gifts as an academic are. I'm a fast reader and a really fast skimmer, so I'm able to quickly absorb, get a general gist of something, and then for some papers I'll do a deep dive on glad you have to choose i think maybe there was once a time where you could there's six journals and you read try to read everything that comes out in each journal each month but i am not that kind of scholar
0: when you think about learning about the same material whether through reading or through podcasts do you think it's like they each so it's probably a combination of both but one would be something like It's the material itself that matters and the material is relatively the same, but you're reaching different target audiences. Some people like to read some to listen. And then the other is you assume you're reaching the same general audience, but the different mediums convey different types of information.
1: That's an interesting point. So I have the book, I'll take a real case of this. I have my book, Psych, and then my friend, David Pizarro. And I mentioned him before as the person who got Mm -hmm. me into moral psychology. We have a podcast called Psych, where we go through each of the chapters and we just talk about it. And we talk about about that. we have a day where we talk about memory or we talk about Freud, talk about mental illness. And in some ways, it's just two different ways of reaching people. Some people like to read, some people like to listen. But of course, each each medium has its advantages and disadvantages. I love podcasts and I love audiobooks. Simply because I, could, I can absorb them while going for a long walk or doing the dishes or mowing the lawn. And so that's the advantage of that. The advantage of books is, of course, there's so much more you can put in a book. People can read much quicker than they could listen. Mm-hmm. And a book you could skim and dart through and move ahead and so on. So I think that they each have it, their advantages. I was raised on books and journal articles and mm-hmm. magazines and so on. So for me, the audio world is new. And I really revel. I really enjoy the advantages that they, that it provides.
0: Have you heard of John Deloney, counseling psychologist? No. Nope. I listened to a podcast with him a while back, and they were having a similar meta-conversation about podcasts and about why they've exploded in the last decade or so. And one of the reasons is the amount of time you're able to save, right? Because you can't really read unless you're sitting down and reading but you can listen to a podcast in earbuds when you're on a run or when you're driving or when you're doing dishes, really anything. So it's a massive time saver or it allows you to multitask while learning. But then another argument he made, which I thought was really interesting, is that there's a certain social intimacy to podcasts. Because if you think about our evolutionary history, even if you're just sitting there listening and not doing any of the talking yourself, it's almost tricking your brain into thinking that you're having an intimate conversation with people. And he was saying that people just really like that. It makes them feel connected. It seems almost like an intimate campfire conversation.
1: I think that's a deep point. I listen to a fair amount of podcasts, and I tend to listen to interview podcasts, and I learn a lot. I just listened to earlier this morning. I was going to an embassy to get a visa, and I was listening to Tyler Cowan interview Peter Singer and pushing him on utilitarianism, and it was a really interesting discussion. But And so those are good. And then there's discussions, which podcasts which have people who are often friends talking and there's a rift between the two of them. Gastropod is one example. Another one is the podcast, Very Bad Wizards, which has, again, David Pizarro and Tamler Summers, who are psychologists and philosophers. And they have a good back and forth and talk about things. And yeah, you have a feeling that you don't get otherwise. You're part of a conversation. You're sitting at a table And these people are talking. It's interesting. And maybe you don't get a chance to talk, but you feel like you're part of it.
0: Thank you, Paul. And thank you to all of our listeners for being
1: part of this conversation. Thank you for having me. This was great. Be sure to check out Paul's latest book, Psych.